Hello, hello. Welcome to the Strategy of Finance podcast, where we celebrate the profession and the professionals in the world of finance. These unsung heroes mostly remain away from limelight, but contribute tremendously towards company building. We endeavor to unpack their journeys to understand what moves them, get inspired by their triumphs, learn from their experiences, and most of all, connect with them at a personal level. I'm your host, Rohit Agarwal, and besides this podcast, my full-time duties include building Creo, the unified operating system for corporate spend. We are bringing together the whole journey of spend so you can buy, pay, and manage all your corporate spends from one single platform. Do check us out at www.krayo.io. Without further ado, let's tune in to learn, grow, and inspire. Our special guest today for the show is a very dynamic, energetic, and always smiling KJ John, a seasoned senior financial executive with more than 25 years of experience in the technology and telecommunications sectors. She currently serves as a board of director for Calera, a communications platform as a service provider, Nubia Brands International, a blank check company focused on the wireless telecom sector, and Vulcan, a developer and manufacturer of electric off-road power sport vehicles. Previously, KJ served as the CFO of Alorica, Epic Systems, and Hawker Beechcraft, and president and COO of Scientific Games. She also spent almost a decade at Alvarez and Marcel as a business transformation and performance improvement specialist. Hi, KJ. Welcome to the show. Thanks for making the time and really glad to have you here. Thanks, Robert. Good to be here. Perfect. So uh, why don't we start with a little bit of background. So tell me, how did you make your way into this amazing world of finance? Well, it was kind of interesting, Rohit, because I always said I would have never had anything to do with numbers or finance because I come from <laughs> an accounting and bookkeeping family with my dad being a controller of one of the big companies in Holland for division controller for Philips and uh, my mom doing bookkeeping and, account and financial administration. I was never going to do anything like that because I spent my teenage years doing small business accounting as my... Uh, kind of job to get extra money. So I was never going to be an accountant. And I have kept to that. I do not have a CPA. <laughs> but other than that, it's all pretty close. But um, yeah, the apple does not fall far from the tree, I guess. So over time, sure. I found I was gravitating more and more to kind of jobs that required me to be very organized, to understand numbers, and basically kind of financial type jobs. And so at, in the end, I gave in and went to business school. And when I graduated from business school in, at Columbia, New York, I um, went to work in corporate finance. And um, initially, I was a financial analyst in the office of the CFO. And it was kind of cool because it was a smaller company. So working for a smaller company, it has a, a fair amount of benefits. This was my first job in the U.S., so I wasn't mm -hmm. all that familiar with SEC filings and the like. So my sure. first job as the analyst actually was to help with their accounting systems and to help with their SEC filings. So if you've done that a few times, which of course the first time you're completely panicking, like, oh my goodness, what if I make a mistake? And how does this work? <laughs> and, you know, in business school, I had a good friend that went to law school and she went into M&A mm. at one of the big law firms in New York. 
So we would call each other, she with finance questions for me, and I with legal <laughs> questions for her. Like, how do I do this? How does this work? And, you know, but uh, all ended well. I don't think I made any big mistakes in our, in our SEC filings. But it's kind of good to be in a small company and you get a broad responsibility. So over the years sure. that I was there, uh, I ended up uh, moving on from the accounting side when we hired a new controller and outside of the SEC stuff, I moved on to more investor relations, raising funds, doing more treasury type stuff. So that was also really, uh, really helpful for my background to deal with analysts, to know what to say, what not to say, um, and to kind of see the, the fundraising side of it, to go to conferences with the CEO. Um, so that was very good exposure for me. I was interested in uh, the cool industry when I graduated was telecom. We're talking late 90s in sure. the US. So yeah. IT, telecom, that whole new internet stuff was super cool. It also came crashing down in around 2000. <laughs> so right. you know, so uh, the cool industry that I was actually ended up setting me up for a career in restructuring after that. Mm. Because the small company I was with was a public company, but it was in telecom. And after that, right. I went to uh, a company that is pretty well known as uh, one of the first big bankruptcies in telecom, which was Winstar. And uh, one of mm. the first new telcos to spectacularly file chapter 11 and all the others follow. I, at that point, I was CFO for Winstar International. I had just come in and they filed. I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> it's kind of a quick study for me about bankruptcy, about what happens, which made me pretty attractive when obviously Winstar was no more job for CFO International because we're basically selling everything. Right. To go to a restructuring firm. So I ended up at Alvers and Marshall, which at that time was very focused on purely restructuring. And now it's a much broader based consulting firm. But when I mm -hmm. joined them, it was still very much a boutique based on restructuring turnarounds, working with companies to help them through tough times. So it was a perfect fit for me. With them, initially, I worked on a lot of telecoms that were filing in 2000, early 2000s. And then I moved on to doing more technology-type companies, done some manufacturing companies. So that by the time I wanted to leave, about 10 or so years later, that I got fed up with being always on the road. As you know, the lifestyle of a sure. construction advisor is like a banker. You leave your home. And yeah. If you're lucky, you're back Thursday night, but usually you're back you know, Friday night, if that. And then you work too. Right. So you can just work from home. So um, the lifestyle is it's tough, right? Because you come into a company, mm -hmm. it is uh, in panic mode. You got to hit the ground running and there's no time. Sleeping is kind of overrated at that point. You just got to kind of get things done. So after right. about 10 years of that, I joined a company called Hawker Beechcraft, which made airplanes. And mm -hmm. why it was a good move for me was coming out of restructuring, no regular company would be interested in somebody with my resume because they feel like, oh my God, people are going to panic when they see <laughs> that we hire you. <laughs> the headlining Wichita, mm. where the company was headquartered, was... Uh, Beachcraft brings in the structuring CFO. So you can imagine that a lot of companies would not like that as their headline. So you had to you had to make a soft exactly, landing. No pun intended. Exactly. I wanted to go somewhere <laughs> where I could uh, use, you know, my experience obviously for restructuring, even though I think that it plays very well in other areas. 
that the skills you sure. build up are very helpful for a growing company, for any kind of company going through change. But mm-hmm. that's not necessarily how the market always sees it. So I needed something right. to kind of bridge myself over into a corporate life that was not crazy restructuring. But, you know, still for me, restructuring was kind of the niche that I was known for. And the good thing about Beechcraft was that it had very, very strong brands, made great airplanes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, uh, it was just a very solid company with a solid product. The problem was at that point that the market for private aviation, this is 2011, since 2008, was really much smaller. So there was a lot of overcapacity in the industry. And they were bought by uh, Volcom Sachs at the time, and I think it was owners, uh, in uh, 2008 at the height of the market, right before Lehman filed, they (laughs) they bought this big company out of it. And guess what? Right. It up. So at a time when the market was shrinking for the product. So fundamentally, you have a company that is really good, makes great products, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's over leveraged and you need to figure out what yep. to do with the competitive situation. So for me, it was a, was a good fit. Uh, I enjoyed my time there. And um, we managed to have a very good outcome. The company went through chapter 11 finally and came out of it in record time, like in eight or nine months. And then mm. later it was uh, sold to its uh, competitor to Textron Aviation. And um, yeah, it was, it was, I think it was a good out- outcome for everybody. Uh, they're still making sure. airplanes today in Wichita, Kansas. So there's still a lot of people that have jobs yeah. that are, uh, are working there and they make, uh, they make great planes. So it was, uh, it was a fun experience for me. And um, I bet. After that, I stayed in Kansas and I worked at Epic Systems, as you uh, may remember. Yeah. <laughs> very, very fondly. That's kind of yes. where uh, we first met. And that was a, uh, a much interesting company. There was still a bankruptcy angle because part of their business is claims processing. So that's why my right. boss, the CEO, wasn't scared of my restructuring background. He was actually very happy that I worked at Office of Marshall, which was one of his big clients. So mm-hmm. um, he just thought that it was a very good background. And I was super happy. It was a very right. nice company. We had a great team. And um, yeah, it just had some challenges. I mean, it was a profitable company. It was not a restructuring. But it had some challenges right. with some activist shareholders that thought that they should be making more money. <laughs> so the company yeah. uh, sold a few years later. But it was, again, it was one of those situations where you come in, you find the situation a little different than what you expected. Uh, it wasn't clear from the outside that there would be an activist party going right. soon after I joined. But you kind of roll with punches. And um, at the end, I think that was a good outcome for everybody. When uh, our fine bankers, <laughs> such as yourself, get the company sold to a strategic and a private equity firm that took it private. So it's all in all, I think it was a good thing. So I think, yeah, I'm just kind of stopped there and I kind of rolled through pretty quickly. But um, yeah, it's kind of how I ended up doing CFO stuff. <laughs> Very cool. And uh, I think a lot lot to unpack there. You've worked across uh, professional mm-hmm. services so as an advisor to CEO, CFOs, as a you know, CFO yourself. And now again, as board members, so kind of very different hats. 
that you have worn over your sort of professional journey. But maybe let's let's uh, unpack a little more in terms of how did you make your move from Holland to the US? Uh, I know like Colombia was sort of the uh, impetus mm-hmm. there. So what was the thought process, you know, as a, as a, as a young girl who's looking to sort of uh, make strides into the corporate world? What was the thought process uh, around that move? Yeah, I was initially actually, yes, I'm, I'm from Holland, but I was actually working in, in Asia when I made the move. I was mm. working in, in Hong Kong at the time. I had come to Hong Kong in a very junior position because obviously I, you know, I didn't know anything. I was very young and I was kind of executive bank carrier for uh, an American executive who worked at the European Merchant Bank. And sure. as I lived and worked there and started learning more and more and realized that finance was really something that actually suited me very well. <laughs> I actually enjoyed hmm. I wanted to admit to myself, given my parents' uh, background. Um, I ended up also there doing a lot more finance. And this is like a long time ago. You're talking Lotus 1, 2, 3 spreadsheets that you're learning. Yeah. Wow. So it was heavy lifting on that side, right? IT wasn't very well developed at that point. Doing a spreadsheet took a lot more work than it does today. But yeah, I thought I actually liked it. I liked the work, but I also felt that if I wanted to do something different uh, and not just stay in, in Hong Kong, which at that point was getting close to being taken over back to China. When I came to Hong yeah. Kong, it was a, was a British colony. I actually mm. left in January 96, like right before the changeover to go to the U.S., but for me, the MBA was a way to come to the U.S., but also a way to change careers a little bit. Right, I felt I was a little stuck. When you come in very near on the admin side, even though you do a lot of things that are more financial in nature, everybody still looks at you as like, you know, this cute girl yeah. that kind of brings coffee and also knows how to run a spreadsheet. <laughs> you know, so I kind of wanted to get out of. I, I can I can relate to that, uh, not the cuteness <laughs> part, but I was. I was also an admin. That was sort of my first job uh, after my graduation. And I, I totally see it. Uh, whatever you do or not, uh, you're still sort of boxed into that admin framework. Exactly. So it was for me, it was a way to Makes sense. And, uh, and it worked. And Very cool. In the US, and I think, I don't know, you're, maybe you have some audience in, in India as well. I was very well advised mm-hmm. by my boss because he was an American that, you know, I didn't really know one school from the other. And he really sure. advised me that you want to be at an Ivy League school if you can get in because it makes a lot of difference when you're there. And I think it is it is a good thing to do if you can get in because I do think it makes a difference. It gives the people hiring you, especially when you're a little bit of a different hire because you're, you're a woman or maybe because you're from India or because you're from Holland or whatever. If you're a little bit of a different hire than your regular guys, it gives them a little bit to hold on. So like, well, you know, she comes out of Columbia business, you can't be that bad. <laughs> I mean, there's, a, there's a sort of, a, I don't want to say it's a sign of seal of approval, but there's a little bit of that going on, right? That it, it kind of is just one of those little things that I think it helps a little bit in the initial process. Makes sense. Absolutely. And so then uh, maybe contrast a little bit your time at A&M being an advisor mm-hmm. to actually, you know, your maybe time at uh, Beechcraft or Epic being a CFO mm-hmm. yourself. How did those two perspectives differ and h- how did you need to reset your mind while you moved from A&M to uh, Beechcraft to start? Well, with? it's actually kind of interesting because at Ultrasom Marshall, I was in the restructuring group that did debtor work, what we call debtor work meaning you're on the company mm. side, 
So very often I would come in as an interim CFO or an interim CRO. So I had done sure. a lot of the job itself, not just in the advising part. I had done mm. both. I had done advising to private equity groups who would ask me to go into a company to look at, I don't know, at their cash management or something like that. Usually it's cash, right? Right. <laughs> Usually it's like <laughs> But mostly, most of my work, especially the first five, six years I was there, was really interim management related through, through a company's uh, kind of change, whether that be a bankruptcy or whether that be some other strategic change or merger or what have you, to kind of manage through that process. So I had a lot of experience in terms of managing through it. But what was kind of the biggest issue, and I think you probably had the same thing when you got out of investment banking, when you're at AM, you're right. used to people being there 24-7 for whatever you need. You have some obscure tax question in, I don't know, I got this problem in the state of Iowa with whatever, right? Some obscure tax <laughs> You can find someone pretty quickly that right. will give you a call like an hour later and say, KJ, here you have this issue. It's like, yeah, can you explain how this works to me? And they'll like give you a briefing on what you need to look at. Right? Yeah. Whereas when you go to a company, it doesn't work like that. People don't work 20 sure. People actually like to have a life, which is a beautiful thing, but it's also very confusing when you go out of a consulting environment where nobody has that. So you have to uh -huh. kind of make that turn and like, okay, this is cool. I know people need a life. I will not talk to them on weekends unless it's really, truly urgent, not just like a random chat because they will jump up and panic. So right. Make sure that, that, that I'm cognizant of that. And also just the way people do things, right? I think we get mm. very spoiled at the firms like Office Marshall or the investment banks or any of the big consulting firms with the quality of people you have around you. Even the juniors, they're, they're just, just high quality people. Whereas in a company, you get uh, a little bit of everything, right? You got, you got sure. every different level that you can imagine. And you got to be able to relate to those people and talk to them and motivate them and understand that they're there to be there from nine to five and to move the ball from A to B. And that's perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that's perfectly yeah. fine. And that's what they want to do. They want to go home at five o'clock and not be bothered. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that, right? At, the, at a certain level, that's, that's what people do. So you got to kind of learn. I think that was kind of the biggest job for me because you come in a company to run a company with a team from Alvarez and Marshall. The team, the associates and the analysts, they deal with the groundwork and run around and get all the information. And then they, and they're like 24-7 available to you. And whatever else you need that is a little outside the ordinary, you can easily ask. You you get the information pretty soon rather than having to, to dig deep that you do in a company. Makes sense. Very interesting. So, so when I moved out of banking, uh, I certainly had the thought that, hey, right now I'm probably covering, you know, uh, 20, 30 or different companies. And there is a bit of that kind of, in, you know, intellectual satisfaction that you may get uh, by talking to different individuals, by being able to cover a broad swath of industries and sort of really being able to, you know, kind of know a lot versus once you move into a corporate setting, 24 by 7, that's kind of one company is what you mm -hmm. were really thinking about. Was that also something that was a challenge to you when you moved out of a to be able to say, hey, now, like, this is, one company is what I need to think about. Or that was like much more easier to no, kind of see. I really into. liked it actually, right? I think the one thing mm. that is lacking in, in my background is I don't have any depth in any real industry. 
right? Because I've moved around so much. So, sure. and I love to learn. So when I went, for instance, when I just went to Wichita for Hawker Beechcraft, it was super cool to learn about aircraft, how the planes are made, the walks from the factory. I loved it. I was eating it up. <laughs> Any excuse to go to one of the big factories or one of the big plants around what we call the square mile where our offices were. It was, I, I always took it as an opportunity to walk around and to talk to the guys that are working the lines and to kind of see what they're doing, what's going on, how things working. I, I thought it was super cool. I even learned how to fly a plane when I was there. Very cool. Yes, wow. I ended up not getting licensed. Nice spark to have. It was, okay. it was because they had the beach flying school and they had some really old mm-hmm. little sundowners, which are single engine prop planes. Right? These are tiny little sure. planes, right? like the engine of a lawnmower okay i mean i'm not exactly okay i mean this is like a little little prop but it was just so So these were like drones drones before the drones (laughs) well i could fit in there okay i instructed to these two people i can fit in but that was a lot of fun that was a lot of fun to to learn that and to get a better sense of, of the products we're making but at the end, I actually did not get certified because being a mm. CFO, you're also in charge of risk management and insurance sure. and any accident with any of our fleet worldwide, which at this point, I want to say we probably had about 35,000 aircraft at any one time that could be flying around. And any accident I would find out about, right, they would immediately come to the company and it would come in for me and through our security guy. And um, it was always the same story. It was people like you and I who are professionals and good at something completely different and decide, oh, flying is fun. And we go and we get certified. We don't really build enough solid flight hours in all weather to really trust our instruments and do the right thing when the weather turns. And Mm. it's very consistent, right? I mean, flying is relatively easy on a nice day. You just get in the plane and you go play. (laughs) But... Sure. You know, when the weather turns, I mean, you really got to know what to do and trust your instruments and, and have the experience. So I really felt like mm. I'll never spend enough time to get, I, I can spend the time to get certified, but I'll never be good enough to really do this without somebody sitting next to me who really knows what he's doing. Makes sense. So yeah, a little bit of knowledge is very dangerous when it comes to piloting planes. There's a lot more interesting. Interesting. Than in interesting. Car. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Wow. So uh, after, you know, uh, training to fly uh, aeroplanes, then you landed at Epic and then uh, did another sort of CFO stint. Mm-hmm. And now you are board member at multiple mm-hmm. companies. How is how is sort of the transition in life uh, again from, you know, actively being involved in day-to-day operations to now being more of an advisor to the CFOs and CEOs? It's kind of interesting, right? Because one of my first board appointments, or actually I think it was the first one, like non-charity board, uh, was actually mm-hmm. somebody who was my the CFO there was uh, an auditor at Epic actually he was the partner at Deloitte at Epic okay. Systems and he went off and did his own thing he's like a CFO of this really cool company that makes electric uh, off the road bikes and vehicles and uh, yeah super yeah fun company and basically what I said to him is that I'll be very happy to do it but you gotta tell me when I get too intrusive you gotta be a good friend and help me when I overstep the boundary. And not stay in the box that I'm supposed to be in. Um, mm. Because obviously being on the board, yeah, it's a strategic role. You should not get too too tactical. And I remember when I just came in there and I was looking for a 13-week cash flow statement, right? And uh, <laughs> it's like, you're not supposed to look at that, okay? And we 
we don't create those because we're not in a bankruptcy situation. So we actually, we have a pretty good handle on our cash, okay? You've got to trust me on this. So, <laughs> all right. So, um, yeah, I think it's it takes a little getting used to. And uh, mm-hmm. I obviously attract also boards that are in some form of, uh, of change or disrupting or what have you. Sometimes you, you do have to kind of uh, pace yourself in that, that you don't get too mm-hmm. too involved with things. you got to trust the CEO and CFO to, to do their job. But at the same time, I'm also right. on audit committees for most of my boards. So, uh, so yeah, but it's been a learning experience, but I think I'm getting better. I don't think I would start the CFO and the CEO too much. All right. Given sort of the experience that you've had across working with different uh, CFOs, different geographies, different industries, how do you how do you think about the evolution of the role of CFOs over the last few decades? And how do you see it sort of playing out maybe over the next five to 10 years? It's kind of interesting, right? I always feel that there is this, uh, there are always shifts, right? It's kind of like the CEOs as well. The CEOs... Depending on the economy, if the economy is bad, they want a CEO with the sales background. The economy is, uh, is, is better, they want, or if there is some financial instability, they want a CEO with the CFO background, right? Or they want an operational CFO, CEO. So it's kind of the same with CFOs, usually in terms of accounting versus finance. Like there are times when there's a lot of regulatory stuff going on, like when socks came on. Those early days after sure. shocks, everybody wanted a CPA for, for CFO. And once that kind of died down and you get to the point that the company needs to do a lot of financings, they want a banker, right? Or somebody that has yeah. some kind of <laughs> treasury type background. So I think the truth is probably in between. The truth hmm. is probably that you, what you need is somebody that understands and has a broad understanding of all the aspects, right? I, I've never been detailed on the, on the tax law, but I understand right. enough of it to know what questions to, to be ask. dangerous. Yeah. Exactly, to know what questions <laughs> to ask. And also, I'm not too proud to ask, right? If something new comes out, mm. I'm not sure. I'll just ask my tax department or I'll just send it to me. I'll read it, right? Just send me the whole thing. <laughs> you know? I've read a lot of yeah, different yeah. FASBs and a lot different, you know, new tax regulation. Although the one that came out under Trump was insane. That was so confusing. And it was so <laughs> big. It was so much. I actually gave up on that halfway. I told the tax guys, like, yeah, you got to give me the, the, sh- the short version of this because I just can't work my way through it. Yeah. But on that one, to my defense, uh, most people couldn't quite figure out what half of it, which way it meant. <laughs> so when in doubt, assuming you favor, will they come knocking, right? So that yeah, was kind yeah. of what we did there. But I think in terms of the CFO role, you need to be broad enough to know where the problems are. And when you have a team, the first thing I always do is try to assess, you know, on my team, who does what and how well mm-hmm. they get it and what are their strengths and weaknesses, right? Where, need, where sure. do they need help from me? Where do I need the focus? And part mm-hmm. of it is, is dictated by the industry you're in, by the issues the company is facing, what is most important for the company at that time. If the company right. is, keeps breaking its covenants, right? obviously you need to yeah. spend a lot of time with the lenders and with treasury. But you also probably need to fix your FP&A because they're obviously not very good at giving uh, giving good projections. <laughs> that's then right. the, the, the source issue that they're facing is that they give the wrong projections and that's why they're always breaking covenants. Sure. So depending on the situation of the company and the strength of your team, I've always tried to keep the team that was there 
which usually mm-hmm. I've been able to do with maybe one or two exceptions that there's maybe one function that you need somebody else for. But generally sure. speaking, I've been able to keep the people that were there and just kind of worked around their weaknesses and built on their on what they have. Because I think mm. if you can do that, I mean, people like to believe that, oh, you need to have a sweeping change. But in most cases, people kind of at the VP level and and the director level, you can find some really good people. And I was lucky to work also in Kansas. You have some pretty, really good people coming out of the the universities there. So you have a lot of talent right there. And you may need to change up one or two, but I don't generally have not really changed our whole teams. I've not felt the need for that. Sure. Which also, if you do that, you basically risk throwing out the baby with the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, there can be a lot of internal knowledge that now disappears because not everything is properly documented at a lot of companies. So, so yeah. So for me, the evolution of, of finance overall, I think it's going to be more because of IT than anything else. But mm. specifically in terms of the general role, it, it kind of depends on the company, right? Where are, where the company is in its life cycle and what is the team that it has and. How can you get that team to do what they need to do at that point in time? But I think IT is probably right. the biggest driver of change. I mean, I don't know if you use like chat GPT or what, but I've kind of played with it a little mm-hmm. bit. I mean, just to know what it is. Right. Right. If you think of things like that, if you think of things like yeah. press releases in investor relations, if you think of uh, creating decks, if you think of, you know, there's a lot of things right. that, Chances are they, that you can automate much more. But at the same time, yeah, but having said that, though, mm-hmm. a lot of companies don't have the basics, as you <laughs> well know from your experience, that you yeah. have like 10 different numbers, depending on who you ask the question to, right? Exactly. So I think a lot of companies, especially if they've done a lot of M&A, if so, a lot of mergers and acquisitions, they will uh, have different systems that don't talk to each other. And right. it's not easy to get correct information. <laughs> to get the right number in yeah. the first place. So forget about artificial intelligence. <laughs> you first need to get the fundamental numbers yeah, yeah. to bring your accounting system to actually come out and be able to manipulate it. I think we have seen even standalone companies don't have their numbers mm-hmm. in check, <laughs> let, let alone uh, people who have done a lot of MA. Uh, makes sense. And then with all the AI, it's like garbage in, garbage out. If you can't put in the right kind of information into it, you're not going to get uh, any interesting answers from it. Exactly. Um, very cool. Uh, you, you, you talked about team uh, formation as the CFO mm-hmm. and that being a crucial part. I'm sure over the years, have as you grown up, uh, you may not have found yourself surrounded with other women. Mm-hmm. Um, and at least like I've seen you uh, at Epic and sort of, you know, a few of the other uh, roles that you have played. Uh, you've always had kind of a little more diverse mm-hmm. uh, set of folks, that, you know, working in your team. Uh, so tell me a little bit more about that in terms of uh, what has been your your experiences mm-hmm. over time with diversity and inclusion, and what do you do specifically? You know, while you were maybe a CFO mm-hmm. and now as a board member to create the right set of environment where diversity and inclusion can foster, mm-hmm. because finance is notorious for kind of not having the right mm-hmm. kind of representation. Uh, even compared to you know whether it's human resources or marketing or sales, some of the other functions in companies. Mm-hmm. No, that's a good question. And I think in, in finance, you have one lucky thing a little bit that a lot of women have gone into accounting, right? So mm. on the accounting sure. side, 
if you look at the accounting firms, they've been kind of ahead of corporate America, I think, a little bit. And there's a fair amount of senior people that are becoming partner or at that level about to become partner. Or you can find pretty senior accountants that you can bring in that are that are women, mm. right? So on the on the diversity side, in terms of female versus male, I think usually the easiest to make strike is on the uh, on the accounting side, right, in your team, and also sure. the tax side. I've, I've had very good success mm. there. That there's like for some reason there's a lot of women that go into it, and I think in the last twenty years when I went to business school, I liked Columbia because it had a high percentage of international students as well as a high percentage right. of women. But I think mm. high percentage is still like I want to say at that time was maybe a third, something like that. <laughs> I mean that was at mm. that time I think the number. Right. But that has improved a lot, right? I mean, I think it wouldn't sure. surprise me if now it's 50-50 or even better in favor of, of women, right? So I think hmm. from, a, from a female perspective, it's becoming easier. And for right. the accounting track Good. and then also in investor relations, you also find a fair amount of women. So I think there is, there's been some traction there that you can find, you know, good female leaders. On the diversity side, it is very much depends where you are geographically as a company in the States, right? The United hmm. States is so big. And right. if you're headquartered, let's say in Atlanta, uh, I've worked at companies in Atlanta and I found a lot of really qualified African-Americans. And they were like, awesome, hmm. right? But there's a big market there. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of African-Americans that live there. And there are a lot of universities, sure. a lot of good schools. And, you know, you, you have a good pool to, to hire from. When I was in Kansas, yeah. I didn't have such a big pool, right? It felt that the pool hmm. was smaller. So you had to kind of push back on HR and say, like, look, guys, I can't just have only, you know, old white guys in these jobs. <laughs> if yeah. we have a new position, you need to come up with different candidates. You need to find different candidates because otherwise we haven't really looked at, you know, the best candidates. We, we haven't really looked yeah. at the good, good cross-section of people to be able to find out who is the best if you don't even give me the option, right? So that's right. always been the first step that, that that I have done is like kind of push back when you only get the same candidates over and over, right? So that's one yeah. step. The other one also, I think, is looking at your pipeline. I hmm. mean, I've had financial organizations of five, 600 people at some point. At the work I've had like 600 people in finance, which is crazy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> We had a hundred thousand people. Are they? I mean, we uh, we did cut them a lot, right? I mean, especially a lot of <laughs> services and other things. But but yeah, I did. sounds sounds like they were literally being counted. I had a, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I had a, a significant uh, calling to do there, right? But uh, actually, their diversity was was much easier because we we already had a lot of people working in the Philippines, being a call center business, mm -hmm. business process. So you're going to have a lot of people, right? Sure. So yeah. and they're also, as as you may know, they're also very well educated, very American oriented, very easy yeah. for an American company to to do business with them. Because chances are they're very qualified also in uh, in US GAAP and stuff like that. So yeah, diversity wasn't an issue there from from uh, an Asian, sure. Asian perspective. So yeah, I think part of it is your own drive to get the feeder, right? Not just the VPs, hmm. not just if you... I used to like to do skip-level lunches, like have lunch with a few people yeah. that are a few levels below in an organization. And I found, 
if I do the one-on-one, people get a little shy and a little awkward for them. So I'm like, oh my God, it's like hard to feel like at ease. So I used to do like two or three at a time from one department, like maybe three people that are Mm. like two levels down in FB&A or something. And, uh, you know, we'll have this like a, like a sandwich in my office or whatever, nothing fancy. We'll just kind of hang out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think on that level is where you need to really start seeing the change, right? If you just look at like, well, Makes you don't sense. find any VP that's like, I don't know, Indian American or whatever. <laughs> well, yeah. okay, you may not have a VP, but you have a director or a junior director or a manager. I mean, what do you have sitting in your overall groups? And why don't you bring him in on the lower levels and mm-hmm. start training them? And also, if they don't work out, why don't they work out? Right? That's Makes the other sense. question you have to ask yourself. It's like, okay, wait a minute. Didn't we have three African-American managers over there and now I have one? Well, what happened? Where did these guys go? Yeah, you know? yeah. And why did they go? Why did they leave? I mean, there could be quite Absolutely. a good reason, but you still need to look at it just to make sure that it was a legitimate <laughs> reason. Nothing to do with something exactly. that the company did that made them yeah. want to leave. Did they get the right kind of yeah environment to foster yeah. Rather than having something, you know, strategically or rather more systemically uh, against them. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, and I think also it it kind of, it it helps when you do skip levels and and talk to different people. You also get a bit more of a sense. I mean, they may not necessarily tell you everything that goes on, but you get a little sense of the people that you have working there. (laughs) So you can also see who's going to be more welcoming to different people that come in because that's also important when somebody comes in and it's like the only i don't know chinese american person in the whole company right versus there yeah. others there it's a difference you know it makes a difference to some makes people. sense some people don't care like i never yeah. cared because you know the chances of there being a dutch woman working there looks like but i know for a lot of people it does matter right so you got to take that into sure, account sure Makes sense. I really like your point in terms of creating pipeline, because if there is an opening of a new hire, Mm -hmm. right, uh, the managers would want to fill that position quickly. Uh, Because again, kind of, you know, KRAs are uh, involved and people want to sort of show impact as soon as possible and do not really want to wait for, you know, a candidate to be hired. And that's where more often than not, right, if you find the right candidate, which may not really satisfy the diversity angle, uh, people tend to just go ahead with that hire. And I think that's where having pipeline really matters because you are all times looking at a diverse set of backgrounds uh, and thereby are able to make the right decision and always take care of the diversity part. Yeah, and I think over, Very interesting. over time, it will it will get better, but it's not naturally going to get better. <laughs> it gets better yeah. because you're pushing it, because you're pushing HR to give you different candidates. And maybe the first time you get five candidates, two are diverse and you don't like them. You know, that's okay. Yeah. That's fine. If those sure. two are not good for the job, then don't hire them. But if you keep getting them into the pipeline, at some point, one of them will be appropriate and you will hire them. But you got to start Absolutely. putting them in the mix. Yeah, uh, makes sense. Uh, well, let's get uh, into a little bit of an advisory mode. Mm-hmm. So let's assume hypothetically that, uh, you know, today is my first day as the CFO of a company. What would your advice be for me on my first 100 days plan at this new company? For me, I think you want to first start understanding like, well, there, there are two things, right? There's your people that you got to build all your relationships, whether that's internal or external, right? And mm-hmm. at the same time, I think what I was thinking about this when we were talking earlier, to me, understanding the business driver, and this is some mm-hmm. homework that you probably have done before you got into the company, 
is also right. very important because if you understand the big picture and spend some time with the CEO to really see what should be our priorities as a company, that will help you right. set your first 100-day schedule. I mean, there are certain things that will always be there, right? You need to build a relationship with your executive team, your own team, mm -hmm. your peers. You know, you need to go lateral to what is the chief marketing, the chief sales, the chief ops, what are those guys doing and what are the expectations of finance? What do they hate about right. us? What do they love about us? <laughs> what is working for them? What is not working for them? I mean, that's important, right? You, you got to make sure that whatever finance does, it delivers to its internal customers, right? That you give the information to your internal customers, what they need. Otherwise, you got people setting up what I would call shadow finance, right? They set up their own little yeah. financial analysts in their teams, which is a duplication right. of effort, which is very expensive. And it creates a lot of confusion in general because they come up with different mm. numbers. They don't try. People need to spend time bridging. Absolutely. Kind of like the bridging numbers to nowhere, basically, right? The numbers that they invented <laughs> in the first place. So, It creates a lot of confusion within the company if you have the shadow finance teams running around in different departments. But it comes because mm. we as finance people are not serving their needs in the first place, right? That's why they create. Sure. That, that's, that's how they, they come to exist. It's the same with IT, right? To me, it's really important to understand your customers, your internal customers, to understand right. your team. What are the strengths and weaknesses of the people you have on your team? Do you have a good control? Do you have a good treasurer? You have a good tax person. I mean, what do they do all day? What is their schedule? What is your cadence? Every company has a cadence, right? We close on day three. We close on day four or whatever, yeah. right? Get into some detail there. Okay, when you close, how do you define close? Does it mean you do your bank breaks or how <laughs> do you just do that quarterly? Mm -hmm. what, what, do you, what do you think is close? So get, get right. right on definition so you make sure you understand the language of the company because, you know, the same word may be different things at different companies. Some companies are like, oh, yeah, we're yeah. close. And then later you're like, well, you didn't do any bank reconciliations. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. Oh, well, the accruals, we just leave for the end of the quarter. And suddenly, mm. you, know, you know, in March, suddenly you see completely different numbers. And like, what the heck happened between February and March? Oh, well, we just did the accruals. Right. Right. So I mean, you need to kind of understand an eye on what the definitions in mm -hmm. the company are and how they use it. So this is a very nitty gritty internal you know judging your people what they do who does what to whom and on the other side does my audience need it and my audience is my internal right. clients right my, my my peers it's the ceo yeah it's the board it's the shareholders investor relations stuff that we send out it's our lenders mm -hmm. what is our lender communication what is our cadence when do i talk to sap when do i talk to moody's i mean you also should do that on a cadence i i right. a company once that i came in and They had not met a CFO for like three years. <laughs> like, wow. I'm like, and you wonder why your rating is in the tank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea because they never really talked to anybody. So you need to talk to these. Mm. You need to reach out and, and talk to them so they can understand what the company actually does. They can understand the story. They can, I mean, it's helpful for them too. They can do their job. If right. you don't communicate right. with With those agencies, they don't really understand what's going on and they'll just stay very on the surface with how they interpret things. So you got to kind of manage all those, uh, all those relationships. But yeah, for me, first, the first thing you got to do is understand from the CEO, what do they think are really the true business drivers? And what is, what is the really the key for the company in the next six months for it to get done? Because finance right. can support that, right? Yeah. Your, your goals have to align with whatever direction the CEO is going. Makes sense. So, 
So let's talk about this seems like the CEO CFO relationship seems to be the most important mm-hmm. uh, from a company perspective or a management team perspective. How did you think about it in your various roles? And if you have some hacks that you used to really solidify that relationship, because there's a lot of trust mm-hmm. that has to come with it, may not necessarily be agreeing to mm-hmm. everything that the CEO is saying, but to be able to you know, really put a counterclaim with a lot of confidence and trust, understanding that this person takes it in the right stride. So, so maybe tell, tell us a little about uh, that relationship. I think this is the key when you're accepting a job because this is your direct superior, right? I mean, every in every mm-hmm. level of an organization, people leave their jobs, not because of the company, but because they're direct supervisor, right? That's why people leave jobs. Sure. Because they're supervisor and mm-hmm. they just don't get along for whatever. And as a CFO, you can't really do your job if you don't have a CEO that, that trusts you and lets you do your job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and actually, it's kind of interesting. You want to look at where the CEO comes from, right? You have a CEO Hmm. that comes out of finance. On the one hand, it's really good because, you know, they understand what you need to do. Yeah. (laughs) But on the other hand, they can also be very micromanaging because they have a very specific idea of what needs to happen. And you come to this organization, it may be quite a mess, but they were the CFO before. I think it was brilliant. Yeah. (laughs) This is so dynamic. You need to try to figure out before you actually take the job (laughs) and try to kind of suss Hmm. out where this person is coming from. If the person comes from sales and has never run finance, chances are you can kind right. of like be trusted to do your job and not get mm-hmm. too much interference there, right? So it very much depends where the CEO comes from themselves. And also, I think your relationship, because obviously it's key, I think on a personal level, you want to feel that it's a person you can, you know, you can work with. You can just, you want to be able to walk in their office, close the door and say, look, this makes no sense. I, I right. just heard you say that to these guys. I mean, obviously, I just sat there and nodded, but between you and I, we, we, we got to do something because that makes no sense. We shouldn't let that happen. Mm. <laughs> or we need to do this or that, right? You need to be able behind closed doors to be very clear, right? To say, like, look, sure. this is not the right way to do it for this industry. And look, at the end of the day, there are things you're going to have disagreements. There are things that, you know, sometimes they'll take your advice and sometimes they won't. And if they won't, it's like, okay, I told you, but... If you still want to go yeah. away, go away, you know, and I'll try my best to make sure it works. <laughs> is that what we're doing? Is what we're doing? I just told you what I think the downside is, but, you know, I've been wrong before and I probably can be wrong again. So let's just go ahead with your plan. But yeah, you want to be able to feel that you can do that, right? That you can go behind closed doors and be right. very clear and very crisp about where you think you are. Makes sense. And then anything specific that you did, maybe to continue to have that dialogue, because, you know, at times, it may just be topical, right? Mm-hmm. Your, your specific topics that you're discussing, mm-hmm. and you may not be able to really connect at a little more personal level to understand the person behind that designation of CEO, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, anything that you did in particular to be able to sort of really get an understanding of that person and where that person is coming from. Not really. It's like it, you you try to get as many CEO exposures before you take a job. <laughs> because, mm. like, <laughs> because once you're there, it's kind of too late, right? You're there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've been pretty lucky that I've worked for some really good CEOs. And you know, one of them, Tom Olison, who, who, who actually died sure. shortly after uh, yeah, the deal with yeah. them, which was quite unfortunate. I mean, he was a super fit guy, even though he was in his 70s. But he was yeah. one of the type of guys that really, really kind of put a lot of trust in his team, which is really mm-hmm. nice to work for somebody like that, right? And, sure. Uh, 
Yeah, at times you take my advice and at times you wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, just like yeah. else. <laughs> but uh, overall, we, we got along very well. And we had a fair amount of conversations before I, uh, I took the job, before right. they offered me the job. So we, we, had a, we, we spent a really good amount of time together. And I think the times that I've taken positions where I have not had that much time with the CEO, that has been kind of a downside. Mm. So you really want to mm. make sure you can try. I know it's when you're interviewing for a job, you just want the person to say like, Hey, you're brilliant. You're hired. <laughs> Here's a lot of yeah. go do your job. <laughs> right. It's usually better to spend as much time as you can with the CEO because that's the person that has to support you. Because mm. if you sit in a board meeting and you may say something that's not popular, like, Hey guys, we're <laughs> <gonna catch." laughs> something like that. You need the CEO to back you up. Totally. How about other departments in your sort of long tenure? Mm -hmm. Was there one department that you really got attracted towards a little mm -hmm. more? Like like in my my little time uh, as an OT, I worked across departments in terms of its sales mm -hmm. heads, marketing heads and so on. But sort of the, the HR piece was something that always pulled me and, mm -hmm. you know, any problem solving on that mm -hmm. front, it just felt like, hey, that's like perhaps the most impactful from my perspective, right? Uh, and anything, anything that kind of you got attracted to a little more uh, in, in terms of a particular department or a problem to me, that you wanted I to solve more, right? Especially hmm. if you're at a company that actually makes stuff like airplanes or things right. like that, right? It's just really cool to just like see how things get made. So I'm always kind of attracted yeah, yeah. to being in the kitchen and seeing what's going on. Hmm. I think my inclination generally is kind of like you. I'm pretty HR focused, right? I think it's kind of the key to anything in a company. If you can't get your people right, then, you know, all bets are off. I mean, right, right. Happen. So, so yes, I'm also always very married to HR. And, and I think there's a natural tension with sales and finance, which is not necessarily hmm. a bad one. Right. I mean, you, this is something that I've had some great VPs, EVPs of sales that I've worked with pretty well. But, you know, we've had our clashes because sales always yeah. wants to recognize revenue the moment they talk to a customer. <laughs> of course, <laughs> I don't want to recognize revenue. <laughs> so there, there's, there's a natural tension there, right? In terms of when revenue gets recognized, when commissions are paid, how commissions are paid, what they're based on. I mean, these are really right. important things that, that, uh, and finance needs to kind of oversee that, right? They need to oversee mm. how, how these people get paid. And obviously, they don't always appreciate <laughs> because they always believe that, well, I made the sales, so I should get my commission. Well, the company hasn't been paid yet, so what am I supposed to pay you with? It's, uh, right. you know, it's a, it's a natural tension there because they're like, well, that's not my problem. I, I made the sale. <laughs> I went out there, look, it's signed, it's a contract, go on. You know? so, so there's a natural tension in those situations and of course as a finance person you always believe they spend too much money they entertain too lavish i mean can't you just take them to mickey d's why do you need to take them to uh, i don't know 11 madison <laughs> so yeah i think there's a natural tension with with between sales and finance but i do think that you can with a bit of humor and and, and respect for each other i think you can you can solve that makes yeah. sense it's uh, certainly you know no surprise that the CFO role is um, quite taxing, right? You kind of need to be on the clock for several reasons, as you mentioned, whether it's the closing of the books, whether it's talking to lenders, you know, investors, other stakeholders. And, you know, no surprise that stuff would be breaking in between at times. So in those situations, how do you sort of keep your calm and really keep going? Because one of the things that 
it's very easy is if the leader is uh, you know panicking, the rest of the team starts panicking even more. Um, so how how do you how do you sort of manage yourself and sort of keep that calm in these uh, panic situations? Well, I can get very um, hyped up when things go wrong. I can get very intense. <laughs> I can get pretty intense. But yeah, I don't panic. I always I, I tend to mm. get a very good focus. Like there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong that you don't control. There are a few right. things that you can't control, right? I mean, I cannot control whether this lender is going to like me or not, whether they're going to extend the loans or not, or you know whether these sales are going to come in or not. But I can't control mm. my behavior. I can't control mm-hmm. the fact that I'm going to talk to him, even though he's going to scream at me. I'm still going to talk to him, <laughs> and I'm going to explain the situation as best as I can. And they're either going to be reasonable, they're not going to be reasonable. But so it's uh, to me, it's, it's be very focused on what you can control. Right, that's the key. There, there's a lot of things that you cannot control in the world, but there are certain things as a company that you can. You can control how you build your product. You can try to make it as as good as it should be, right? That you know that you don't have uh, have quality issues, right? I mean, these are things that you should be able to control. That the numbers that right. come out of finance that they actually tie. <laughs> this you can control. There shouldn't yeah. be. I shouldn't be. My, my team should not be sending out PowerPoints that the numbers don't die, right? They, they, they should be correct. I mean, these are things that we can, we can control and we got to focus on. Yeah, makes, I think I think that's great advice. Uh, focus uh, on what you can control. Uh, maybe continuing this theme, uh, do you have some advice for emerging professionals who kind of uh, aspire to be CFOs or leaders in finance? I think they're, well, they're, they're, they're two different things, right? I think one of my shortcomings, as I said earlier, is that I don't really have any industry depth because I've been in so many different industries, which mm-hmm. kind of hamstrings you if you want to be a CEO at some point, right? So if you're a CFO mm. who wants to be CFO track to CEO track, I would right. think you want to kind of make sure you really know one industry well, right? One or two industries that just kind of stick in an industry. Because I think that's mm. kind of for a CEO when you need to do strategic stuff, it's kind of important. Because a CFO, you can be much more raw industry-wise, right? I don't think it matters that right. much. Unless it's like highly, highly regulated, like certain things in healthcare or what have you. I think in general, yeah. it's, you know, industry is not as important for a CFO as it is for like a CEO. So I think that's one thing to keep in mind, right? But mm. in terms of actual finance skill set, to me, the most important skills at number one is, is people, right? At Alfred and Michelle, we used to talk about creating a following, and they would actually be talking about customers. But I also think, hmm. you know, about clients are people that want to hire yeah. you. But I actually <laughs> right. always thought about it in terms of, of people that work for you, right? Hmm. The people that work for you, I think the key here is, would they work for you again somewhere else? If you jump companies, sure. are they the ones that say, hey, Katie, are you come to that company? If you have any opportunity, let me know. I will also come back. Right? That's a good sign. Yeah, yeah. You don't hear from anybody. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a good sign. Right? People don't want to <laughs> That's not a good sign. Right? So I think you want to get a people following in the sense that you want to create teams that work well, that like to come to work in the morning because at the end of the day, you spend an inordinate amount of time at your job. So you want to make sure mm-hmm. that, yes, not every day is fun and games, but that overall people enjoy what they're doing. And that there is an environment there where people are, you know, feel they can be open and can be themselves and can just walk into my office too. That's like I do with the CEO and close the door and says, KJ, you're full of it. I can't believe you're doing this. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) That's very important. 
right? To create that environment. Because I think companies get in trouble because they don't create that environment and people are too afraid to speak up. Not because people don't know. People know. People on the, right, on the right. manager level, they know exactly what's going on. <laughs> yeah. They really do. And the problem is... And especially in finance, oh, when yeah. they see the numbers. They see the numbers, yeah. they know. But then they don't tell, yeah. right? Or they know that something doesn't really work quite well, or there's this one division that's just kind of messing things up. They're not going to tell mm-hmm. you if they don't trust you, right? If you don't build a, sure. a, a relationship with your team of trust, if they're afraid they're going to get yelled at and send out of the office for bringing it up, they're not going to come to you. And I think that's something important to be able to build relationships, build teams that, you know, that will help you when you're about to do something stupid. (laughs) It's just as important as the people that will do their jobs, right? They need to be able to be open and honest with you so that you can can trust that, you know, the numbers actually tie. There's not some skeleton there somewhere that, you know, you're going to get caught on. Makes sense. Look, this has been super interesting. Uh, I know we are a little constrained on time. Uh, so why don't we now move to a lightning round? Oh, You're all ready for it. This should be fun. All right. So I'm going to ask you uh, some you know, simple questions and uh, I need immediate responses. Okay. All right. So let's start. Uh, sweet or savory? Savory. All right. Uh, books or podcasts? Books. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. You're still uh, doing doing a podcast. That's great. Thinker or doer? Doer. Uh, movies or web series? Movies. LinkedIn or Twitter? LinkedIn. Scotch or whiskey or whatever else is your uh, guilty pleasure? My guilty pleasure is more something like a smoothie, but okay. Mango smoothie. All right. Very cool. Uh, money or happiness? Happiness. Introvert or extrovert? Extrovert. Summer or winter? Summer. Well, you're in Miami. Yeah, That's an easy Miami. answer. Uh, growth or profitability? Profitability. What is KJ's one hidden talent? My one hidden talent. That's a, that's an interesting one. I'm pretty. I'm, I'm close to being a scratch golfer, but I'm not sure that's hidden. Because <laughs> yeah. I play competitive, so All I'm right. not sure how hidden. It is. Yeah. Cool. Number one thing on your bucket list right now? Uh, to play in a USGA national tournament golf. <laughs> All right. And how, how close are you uh, on that? Um, Just curious. Last year, I missed the USGA senior qualifier in a playoff for the last spot from Florida. Ah, so I was right. close. So I, was, I, I feel I'm, I'm, I'm oh. closing in. <laughs> well, good, good luck for this season. Yep. Who is your role model or something that uh, you, know, uh, you really look up to, whether it's personally or professionally? Actually, we were just talking about, about Tom, about my former CEO, right? Yeah. And he had this one quality that I really admired. Well, he had a lot of quality, good qualities, but this one thing that was really cool. He was very, we used to call it calm, cool, and collected under pressure. Just think about it. You're a CEO. You built your business for many, many years. This is your baby. And you got these yeah. people yelling at you about how you're doing everything wrong, <laughs> how you sell this company and all this. I mean, I would get excited. And I was only at the company for a few months when this uh, yeah. strategic situation happened with the activist who was pretty brutal to him on the phone sure. initially. Mm-hmm. And he just stayed so calm. He was so calm on the phone. Mm-hmm. And I, I, was, I was getting more excited than he was. And I just walked in the door. It was nothing to do with me personally. 
But I was getting all excited as the waiter was talking. I was like, you can't talk to my boss like this, you know? But he was like super calm, super collected. And okay, I see your point. And he was like, you know, he really handled that so well. <laughs> I was like, wow, that was very, very impressive when people can do that. Certainly, certainly. And then the last one, describe yourself in three words. Straightforward, uh, athletic, reader. All right. Very cool. Thanks. Uh, this has been an amazing show. And uh, again, thanks a lot for taking the time. Well, thank you, Rohit. Yeah. Thanks for having me. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you will find at least one nugget that is beneficial to you. As always, thanks for listening to Strategy of Finance podcast. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Your comments will make us better. And be sure to tune in next week for another engaging conversation. Until then, this is Rohit Agarwal, and remember to learn, grow, and inspire.